This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. On this week's Second Story Podcast, Parker Stockman's diagnosis of clinical insomnia gives him a unique way to connect with the world around him. The nights were ours. But where is the line between his dreams and reality? I felt like I was going crazy. And does that line even matter? Parker is a recent transplant to Chicago, pursuing his MFA in fiction writing at Columbia College. He already holds degrees from the University of Georgia and from Florida Gulf Coast University. Parker plays for the Chicago Dragons, a local rugby team, and believes that Meatloaf is the greatest singer of all time. This story, titled POW 332, was performed at Second Story's event on October 21st at Brasserie 54 in the Andersonville neighborhood of Chicago's North Side. The theme of the evening was Live Through This, stories from the School of Hard Knocks. The show was directed by Nick Diamond, curated by Bobby Vadrisky, and featured a sound design by Eric Hazen. And now, Second Story presents Parker Stockman. I met Mike's girlfriend at his funeral. She was beautiful, like he had said, with long, straight brown hair and a tapered waist, something Mike always mentioned liking. She accused me of killing him. I met Mike the week before our freshman year at the University of Georgia started. Late at one night, I woke up to use the restroom, and on my way back to my room, Mike was walking in front of me. He was a blonde guy about my height with thick, muscled shoulders, and his blue eyes were incredible and penetrating, and I felt like I really knew him. We did that whole normal first meeting in the dorm conversation. Nice to meet you. Where are you from? Are you nervous about school starting? Are you rushing a frat? Mike seemed cool, and he reminded me of some friends from home that I missed desperately. He had a wicked nice smile and laughed easily, and he invited me to come play video games in his room. He lived in room 332, which was on my side of the hall at the very end of the hallway next to the emergency exits. We stayed up battling gun-toted, pixelated bad guys and talked about everything from our political stances to our hatred of American Idol. <laughs> I don't have a roommate, he told me when I was about to leave. Guess I got lucky. You're welcome to come hang, hang by any time at night. I told him this sounded great. Just don't come by during the day, he said. He probably um, thought that this was strange by the raised eyebrow I had. Oh, I'm usually at my girlfriend's place. She's having trouble adjusting to college, so I hang out there a lot. So I said, okay. We hung out every night after that. We ran through North Campus at 2 a.m., and we would go for walks when the city was sleeping and talk, and then return to room 332 for epic video game battles. The nights were ours. He was my new best friend on campus, his easy smile would help assuage the fears and anxieties and nervousness I had about school and class and fitting in. He always had the right thing to say. A month into school, I got home early from class and decided to see if Mike was home. Mike had said not to drop by during the day, but whatever. It, it was before night when we always met, and I was bored. I dropped my bag off in my room and walked over to his... Only the room, the hallway, ended at room 328. 
I thought, well, his room's next to the emergency exit stairs, room 332, but this is definitely room 328. Richard and Kirk live in room 328. But 328 was right by the stairs. Richard and Kirk's names were on the red bulldog cutouts that our RA had put on all of our doors. What? I felt like I was going crazy. I always went to his room late at night, so I just had the wrong number in my head and didn't remember where he lived. Right? I walked down to my RA's room and asked about Mike. Parker, he said, there isn't a mic on our floor. I didn't know what to do or say. Just kidding! Didn't sound right, but it's what I landed on. (laughs) I went back to my room, confused and frightened. What was going on? I crawled up into my bed, pulled the covers around me, and thought that clearly there had to be some kind of explanation. I called my parents, as I want to do in these kinds of situations, and my dad told me to go see a doctor immediately. He thought I was having a psychotic break. After a few hours of bouncing around between doctors and a specialist that day, I found out that my new best friend was a figment of my imagination. Crazy, right? Crazy people don't know they're going crazy. Yet I was seeing someone that wasn't there, and I didn't have a room, but I'd been to his room, and we talked all night, and we would go running through North Campus at nighttime, and we took pictures together, and I didn't have a couple of these pictures, but I thought I did, and... Clinical insomnia. That was the doctor's diagnosis. For four years, I'd averaged two hours of sleep a night. Now, I knew before seeing doctors that this wasn't normal, but... He explained that this is how Mike came to be. I was in a daze from having my world shattered, literally disassembled. The doctor peered through his glasses. Your body goes straight into REM sleep during these little naps that you take at night, and it makes it so your mind is unable to tell a realistic dream from real life. So this is what Mike is? He nodded. He isn't real. I probably smiled and thanked him. I'm not really sure. I don't remember. But I do know I made up a friend. (laughs) A combination of loneliness and, and sleeplessness creating the perfect person with whom I could navigate a strange new landscape. Yeah, I was straddling reality and my imagination and insomnia-fueled dreams with the loneliness as I was feeling in life and the raw emotions with which I had yet to deal in the waking world could be explored and examined. The night after I was diagnosed, I dreamed I was on a grassy incline in what looked like a park. People were in front of me, dressed up in oxfords and ties and even some suits, and the women wore dresses. A young brunette was standing and saying something that I couldn't hear. She was reading from a piece of paper. When she was done, the crowd departed and the girl stayed behind. She stood in front of a tombstone, which was revealed to me by the parting bodies. 
Parker? She asked as I approached her from behind. Yes, I said. Oh, Parker, he told you never to come by at nighttime. I know, but I didn't know he wasn't real. Well, he certainly isn't anymore. You killed him, Parker. You had to find out, didn't you? And it killed him. (laughs) I knew it was weird. He wasn't real, and yet I was dream crying, sobbing. She turned to look at me. She wasn't crying exactly, and she wasn't smiling, but she was somewhere in between. You'll never see me again. And I woke up. After my diagnosis, I tried pills and sleep therapies until I created a sleep cycle where I tricked my body into sleeping six to eight hours a night until I didn't need the drugs anymore. So when I was 20 and off the drugs, I was making sleep a priority in my life and dealing with my anxiety and my loneliness and other ways than creating an imaginary friend. Well, that's when I was able to connect with my grandparents in my dreams. In the portraits gracing my Aunt Mary's walls, Grandpa Orville smiles under a World War II-era pilot's cap and goggles, and Aunt Jano can only be identified by the feisty, bottle-dyed red hair. Grandpa was a POW in World War II, and they could both get a little crazy the more cocktails they had. And they always had cocktails. When Grandpa called me, I didn't recognize the phone number or the name on the caller ID. You daily. I should have remembered that was my mother's maiden name. We talked for a minute. He and my grandma wanted to meet. They brought a cooler full of bush beer to our first meeting, and it was delicious. Their faces were blurred, like in the pictures I'd seen on the walls. I didn't know what to say, and neither did they. We'd sit silently for a minute and wonder what we meant to each other. I finally broke the silence when I said, Mom misses you guys. Mom missed them because they died a dozen years before she met my father. The blur of his face brightened and I knew that Grandpa was smiling. We missed her too. Grandma's breath shortened and sounded labored. I knew she was crying. They died young, Grandpa from a brain aneurysm, and my grandmother, supposedly, from a broken heart. Slowly I'd get them to talk and open up during our dream meetings. I got to talk to my grandparents, two people I'll never meet in real life, and two people my sister might never meet in her own dreams. Slowly we'd grow to open up and enjoy our time together. I loved dreaming. I loved this gift that I was given to see and understand my dreams so clearly. Now, some dream researchers say that dreams represent the psyche state of being right before you fall asleep. But I don't think of my grandparents when I fall asleep. I'm thinking of school or work or that last text message from a crush that I received before falling asleep. And those things don't show up in my dreams. My dreams are specific. Complicated. One time, I met Grandpa on a beach by himself. 
Smoke plumes skimmed the sky lazily in the distance. He was quiet when we met. He pointed to concrete buildings that jutted out of the sand like hidden bunkers. I realized that they were hidden bunkers. And I knew what beach we were on. One in the Pacific theater of World War II. The beach about which my grandfather refused to speak. The beach on which he spent a year. The place he went back to in his memories when he was huddled on the couch and crying with my grandmother, thinking the children were asleep and my mother could hear him. We entered the concrete building. It was completely empty, stained, and smelled of stale air. Winding down the hallway, he touched the walls with familiarity. He wasn't being nostalgic. We finally arrived at a door. He opened it. The room was empty, my dream hauntingly quiet. I expected to hear screams echoing in the room, but there was a serenity to the lack of sound. The room was damp, there wasn't even a cot. It wasn't large enough for his body to stretch out completely. He curled into a ball on the ground. This is it, he said, hugging his knees to his chest. He looked so young, the blurs on his face finally settled so I could see it. They fed us nothing but rice for 12 months before we were all rescued. I weighed 110 when I left, 60 pounds lighter than when I entered. I sat down next to him. They tortured us on a daily basis. That was our only exercise, walking down the hallway to get tortured. I didn't ask how, and he didn't tell me. I woke up, and I never visited the POW camp again. I don't know if that's what the camp was actually like, and I don't even know if that was the real camp that he was at, but I like this dream. I like this memory that I created. I like it just this way. This connection to my grandfather that I have and this realness that I feel from the dream. Other dream researchers say that color and sound don't exist in your dreams. The sound and the color you hear and see are just your mind trying to make like attributes to the dreams as you wake up trying to make a sense of that fantastic and, and situating in the real world. It's almost like you relive the dream in that moment. But I don't believe that. I've spoken with Mike and felt the wind rush around me as I ran across campus. I've tasted my grandparents' beers and felt the warmth of my grandmother as she hugged me and the tightness of Orville's hand as he embraced mine. I do see color and hear music and taste beer and smell perfume. If I don't, then these meetings never happened. If I don't, then these people never were. If I don't, none of the beauty that surrounds me in my sleep is true. And to me, it is true. It has to be true. That was part
Parker Stockman. If his story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Join us tonight, November 2nd, at the Underground Wonder Bar in Chicago's Gold Coast for our book release bash. With admission, you will witness three amazing stories featured in our first ever second story anthology titled Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck. You can also buy advanced copies of the anthology in advance of its release date on November 13th. Or join us on Saturday, November 3rd, at DePaul University's Mixed Roots Festival. For tickets to these events, or for information on other upcoming Second Story performances and information on how to get involved with Second Story, please visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. This podcast was brought to you by Amanda Delheimer Diamond, Bobby Bedrisky, Nick Diamond, Eric Hazen, the Second Story Publishing Committee, Danielle Ezel, Sherry Pentamone, and myself. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. Thanks for listening.